this week. PG&E unlikely to have caused Tubbs fire. Sears UCC seeks to prosecute Lampert. iHeart and Toys bankruptcies move forward. More on all this, and as always, updates from Puerto Rico. Welcome to the Week in Reorg. Hello, and welcome to the Reorg Research Weekly Podcast, where we bring you the latest top developments in the news of distressed debt and bankruptcies. I'm Connor Skelding, reporting from Reorg's offices in New York City. And I'm Mark Fisher. This week, legal analyst and your weekly podcast host, Karen Lung, interviews Kenneth Chris of Chris Global. They discuss the first decade of the Madoff case from the perspective of Madoff's largest feeder fund, Fairfield Century. It's Sunday, January 27th. The nation's largest investor-owned utility, moving closer to its anticipated January 29th bankruptcy filing date, obtained a rare glimmer of good news as Cal Fire said it was, quote, unlikely that the 2017 Tubbs wildfire was caused by PG&E equipment. Instead, the agency said a private electrical system was probably to blame. California Governor Gavin Newsom told reporters in Sacramento on Thursday that Cal Fire's determination was, quote, not insignificant, as his office estimated that the Tubbs fire had made up about $17 billion of the $30 billion in wildfire liabilities PG&E had estimated in its January 14th 8K filing. PG&E noted that, quote, regardless of Cal Fire's findings, the utility still faces extensive litigation, significant potential liabilities, and a deteriorating financial situation. On a lender call on Wednesday, Reorg learns that the utility provided details of the sources and uses of its proposed $5.5 billion debtor-in-possession financing, explaining that the facility is meant to fund the business and will allow investment in critical infrastructure over the duration of the bankruptcy case, which, management estimates, could take about two years. In addition, the company discussed an incremental $4 billion dip term loan that would support the company through one additional year in bankruptcy and or increase investments in wildfire prevention measures, according to comments on the call. Under the proposed dip covenants, the company will have the flexibility to sell up to $4 billion in assets and use the proceeds for general corporate purposes. Above that, the next $4 billion of proceeds are subject to certain reinvestment rights, with any additional proceeds going to pay down the dip term loan. The company said it plans to meet with ratings agencies after the first day hearing and expects a dip to be rated, quote, strong BB with, quote, a very good chance of IG ratings on the facilities. In other PG&E matters, Blue Mountain Capital Management issued yet another open letter informing shareholders of its intent to nominate a full slate of new directors to replace PG&E's current board no later than February 21st. Blue Mountain said it, quote, expects that the current board will continue their indifferent approach to governance and file for bankruptcy, and that it would continue to demand accountability, quote, even if the current board follows through on its ill-advised plan to file for bankruptcy. In Sears, the Unsecured Creditors Committee sought standing to prosecute claims against ESL and its CEO, Eddie Lampert. The motion seeks standing to prosecute 14 proposed counts against ESL Investments, Lampert, and ESL President and Sears Director, Kanal Kamlani. The UCC's motion describes, quote, the tortured story of Sears like a Shakespearean tragedy playing out over five acts in a, quote, years-long scheme to rob Sears and its creditors of assets and its employees of jobs while lining Lampert's and ESL's own pockets. According to the UCC, by accepting ESL's credit bid and granting a release to the Sears investor, the debtors have decided not to pursue these claims despite their significant value to the estate. 
The committee says that the debtor's failure to prosecute the claims is unjustifiable and the UCC should be given authority to sue. The motion argues that, quote, Sears cannot survive as a going concern and that Lampert and ESL have not presented a business plan with a go-forward path. After 10 months in Chapter 11, Judge Marvin Isger confirmed the iHeartMedia debtor's plan in Houston on Tuesday, which was the third day of the plan confirmation hearing. The proceeding was largely consensual, with plan proponents across the capital structure expressing support for plan confirmation. Judge Isger overruled the remaining confirmation objections from the U.S. trustee and the Securities and Exchange Commission, which had argued that the plan's release and exculpation provisions were overly broad. Debtors' counsel from Kirkland and Ellis told the court that iHeart expects to emerge from Chapter 11 in the, quote, early to mid-second quarter of 2019. At a Thursday hearing in the Toys R Us cases, Judge Keith Phillips confirmed the amended PropGo 1 and amended Wayne Parent Plan. The court overruled the U.S. trustee's objection to the plan releases on similar grounds to prior rulings in the Toys R Us cases. The U.S. trustee did not appear in court due to lapsed federal funding, but agreed to rest on its papers and oral arguments with respect to previous Toys plans. The Toys Delaware plan went effective Sunday, January 20th. The Taj debtors plan went effective Wednesday. A notice from the debtors regarding the Taj's Taj plan's effectiveness further states that the plan of the, uh, the TRU Inc. debtors, quote, will occur on or before February 2nd, at which point a separate notice will be filed on the docket. The liquidating trust and the trustee will be overseen by a committee initially comprising the following three members designated by the Taj Holders Steering Group, Cyrus Capital, York Capital, and Barclays Bank. On Monday evening, the PROMISA Oversight Board filed revised proposed findings of fact and conclusions of law and a revised confirmation order relating to COFINA's third amended plan of adjustment, as well as revised proposed form of order relating to the Rule 9019 motion seeking approval of the Commonwealth COFINA settlement. Judge Laura Taylor Swain ultimately reserved decision on confirmation of the COFINA plan, the Rule 9019 motion, and Section 19.5 dispute, and on Tuesday entered an order directing the plan proponents to file briefs explaining the basis for their support. On Thursday, supplemental briefs were filed by National, AMBAC, and the plan support parties, that is, the Oversight Board, FF, and the COFINA Senior Bondholders Coalition. The briefs stressed that COFINA's historical status as a separate, independent, public corporation instrumentality. The supporters of the COFINA plan also argue that the new COFINA bond legislation, which would take effect on the COFINA plan effective date, quote, does not change COFINA's status as a separate public corporation. Separately, Puerto Rico's economy continued to show signs of traction in November 2018 as most metrics in a key gauge rose, unemployment fell to a new low, and manufacturing showed expansion. Meanwhile, executives of some island banks cited a steady economic recovery in fourth-quarter earnings calls this week. U.S. Senator Elizabeth Warren of Massachusetts, one of the many contenders for the role of Democratic candidate in the 2020 presidential election, visited the island after sending a letter inquiring about news reports suggesting the Trump administration could withhold aid appropriated by Congress for Puerto Rico's recovery efforts. In her letter, the senator asks for responses to her questions from the Trump administration by February 5th. Other top red stories of the week were, one, First Energy Solutions Corp. reaches RSA with key stakeholders to own, operate, retail, and wholesale load servicing business beyond Chapter 11. Two, Judge Cote denies PetSmart Argo's third-party discovery request, directs additional briefing on other disputes. 
And three, nine West debtors file amended plan that alters or enhances certain recoveries. Has support of secured, unsecured term lenders sponsor UCC. And now here's Jim Holloway with the week ahead. Well, thanks, Mark. Morning, y'all. Greetings from the Bayou City. It's an interesting week before us. Not a great deal on the calendar, relatively speaking, but what's there is pretty significant. And, of course, as every analyst, trader, and portfolio manager is no doubt aware, fourth quarter earnings are drawing increasingly nigh, as signified on Monday, January 28th, when we have results from AK Steel. And on Tuesday, January 29th, Going to California, if I may quote from Led Zeppelin. Uh, it's my least favorite song on Zeppelin 4, which is neither here nor there. But anyways, PG&E, Pacific Gas and Electric, is expected to file for Chapter 11 in the Northern District of the Golden State on or about today. So lawyers, advisors, and bondholders, good luck and Godspeed. Wednesday, January 30th, there is an order to show calls in PG&E. Fourth quarter earnings from Tesla. I actually see the occasional Tesla car here in Houston. Most of the time with California plates, as it happens. Uh, anyways, we also have a confirmation hearing in PetroQuest. PetroQuest will be presenting up at a conference in Shreveport next month, talking about the Austin Chalk, as I recall. I'm looking forward to that. There's mighty good Cajun cooking up in Shreveport. Little shack up there with crawfish cornbread that's even better than my grandma's, and it's worth a drive. Thursday, January 31st, it's the end of the month, so you know what that means. It's tap-on-the-shoulder time, forbearance expiration for CTI Foods, and the end of a grace period for Fuse Media. DS plan confirmation hearing in Checkout Holdings, a motion to dismiss in Bonton, and a hearing in Neiman Marcus. And Friday... February 1st, a confirmation hearing in Nine West and fourth quarter earnings from Weatherford. Us oil patch types will be watching that one closely for any color on the budget spending outlook for the year in light of all the vol and crude and so on. And there it is, folks. Back to y'all in the frozen north. Thanks, Jim. We'll be following all that and more in the coming week. And now, as previewed, Karen talks with Kenneth Chris about the Madoff case and Madoff feeder fund Fairfield Century. And we're very excited to have as our guest, Kenneth Chris, the executive chairman and founder of Chris Global, an international asset recovery firm with expertise in offshore-focused fraud investigations, cross-border insolvency, and restructurings. Ken is joining us today about 10 years after the exposure of the Bernard Madoff scandal. Madoff, a former NASDAQ chairman and founder of Bernard L. Madoff Investment Securities, LLC, in 1960 was arrested on fraud charges on December 11, 2008. Madoff later pled guilty to 11 federal crimes, admitted to operating the largest private Ponzi scheme in history, and was sentenced to 150 years in prison, where he remains today. In the last decade, Irving Picard, the SEPA trustee for the Madoff estate, has recovered about $13.3 billion. That's about 75 cents on the dollar of the stolen money. That's an impressive achievement and one that has dominated headlines of the 10-year anniversary Madoff retrospectives that have been released recently in the media. Madoff, his associates, and the SEPA trustee may be the most visible players in this story. However, a story that's received less attention is that of the Madoff feeder funds. Ken is a joint liquidator, along with his colleague Charlotte Caulfield, for Fairfield Century, the largest Madoff feeder fund. He'll talk to us today about how Fairfield has fared in its recovery and litigation efforts in the decade since the Madoff story broke. 
To date, Fairfield's liquidators have recovered assets of nearly $500 million for its creditors and shareholders. It's a fascinating story that spans multiple jurisdictions and is still ongoing today. Ken, thank you so much for joining us today. I was intrigued to read on your website that you've, quote, successfully chased and recovered in excess of $2 billion for victims of white-collar crime. To start off, could you introduce yourself and what you do for our listeners? Thank you very much for having me. Um, so, as you had stated, I'm, I'm the executive chairman and founder of Chris Global. Chris Global is a sort of a, a different um, shore. We focus on the offshore um, and particularly in places that are tax havens in going and investigating fraud and trying to bring assets back for, for victims. Uh, so the case of Fairfield is a good example of that in which um, you're looking at a, a situation uh, which we'll talk about a little bit more but very little in regards to assets. You have to pursue a sort of another strategy um, which is probably more litigation driven um, also in regards to getting documents and information, so it's more driven around discovery um, and, and, and finding ways to be able to get information and bring assets back to victims. And that's really what, what Chris Lobo is about. Great. And uh, as we mentioned earlier, Fairfield Century was the largest Madoff feeder fund. Who, uh, For those who may not be familiar with the term feeder fund, what exactly does it mean? Uh, can you tell us who are some of the other large Madoff feeder funds, for example? Uh, a feeder fund is a entity, uh, usually done through a corporate or maybe through a partnership, in which investors who for whatever reasons, may not want to invest directly into the um, principal party, like in this case, directly into Madoff, for various reasons. That may be, um, for instance, currency. They don't want to take the currency risk and putting it into U.S. dollars. So if they're you know, living in Europe and they want it to continue to be in euros, uh, there may be a feeder fund, um, which is in euro dollars, and then that, in, a, in the case of where I'm a liquidator, Fairfield Sigma is in Euro dollars, so they get the benefit of keeping it in Euro dollars, not being um, subject to the volatility, and so you have parties that will invest through that mechanism or that, that incorporation. So that's the, the feeder fund sort of process is, is finding another way in which you get all the benefits from the direct investment, but not necessarily you can, you can take care of some of your risks or concerns that you may have. Other funds, um, there are uh, a fair number of other funds that are out there. People may be aware of or heard of Kinggate, um, which was probably not quite as large as Fairfield, but a very large one. Uh, Primero is also a, a very large one and has been very active in the litigation in, the, in Cayman um, in regards to its claims that it's had against like HSBC. Um, and um, Harold, who was actually an investor in Primero, um, but was basically considered a Madoff feeder fund. So uh, there's quite a few that are out there. Good to know. And uh, Ken, you know, one of the things that you've touched on already is that you are one of the joint liquidators for Fairfield in the British Virgin Islands court. What are the duties of the BVI liquidators? It's a little bit different than the process in the U.S. under a sort of a trustee under Chapter 11. Um, we are officers of the court. And so 
Um, our appointment and the things that we will do, we will spend a lot more time getting direction from the court in regards to how we operate. Our primary duty is to maximize the assets that come into the estate and then to distribute them to creditors and to members based on certain rules regarding priority and ranking in the, in the estate. With that general concept, then we will go and get direction as to whether we're going to litigate against certain parties, how we're going to distribute those monies, um, and also you know, get approval for our fees and, and those type of things. And when the Madoff scandal broke in 2008, what was Fairfield Century's position with respect to Madoff? In broad strokes, where was Fairfield located? What was its business and what were its assets? So Fairfield Century is a BVI incorporated entity. Um, Much like feeder funds, um, what it does is it delegates its primary services or the primary functions that it has within the the feeder fund to third parties. So it has an administrator, um, it has directors that are outside, and all of those parties will normally not be in the BVI. They will be um, someplace else, and in this case, most of them were in either the United States or in Europe. Fairfield's assets um, were, it showed assets um, on its balance sheet of 7.2 billion. But those were primary, 95% of those assets were invested in, in Bernie Madoff. There was another 5% what was supposed to be sort of independent or non-Madoff funds. But in truth, even those, uh, a fair number of those invested back into Madoff or had um, risk which was correlated to Madoff. Uh, so primarily, all of its substantial assets were in Bernie Madoff and clearly when the Ponzi scheme was, you know, brought to light, that sort of demonstrated that basically Fairfield Century had no assets. It did have cash of around $71 million. Uh, that was held in a bank account in Ireland, in a Dutch bank there, um, but there was an injunction filed against it, so it wasn't free and clear and available to the liquidators when we came in. In regards to how, f- also in relation to BVI feeder funds, um, there was no staff. We didn't have any hard disks that we could sort of go and pull. The information that you're gonna have in BVI is gonna be extremely limited. Um, so, you know, a big part of us when we were kind of came in was we didn't have much in regards to records or understanding, you know, what potential claims or how we might be able to make recoveries. And I was a big focus early on. Ken, when you were appointed as BVI liquidator, what was the position between Fairfield and the Madoff SEPA trustee? Uh, Did the trustee have a claim against Fairfield, and how did Fairfield respond? That was probably the primary sort of issue that we almost faced coming in on day one. Uh, Irving Picard, the trustee for the Bernie Madoff securities company, was... Uh, had already filed a claim against Fairfield for preference, fraudulent conveyance, and just um, clawbacks in regards to redemptions in far excess of $3 billion. Um, And uh, interestingly, as part of having a claim filed against us, that meant that in relation to our asset position or what 
interest we may have in Bernie Madoff, the, the rules in, in the U.S. insolvency uh, or bankruptcy law is that you have to pay that claim before you can get the benefit of the asset in, uh, in Madoff. We clearly didn't have $3 billion, and so we were in no position to be able to sort of pay that claim um, or to be able to deal with it. And in our discussions with um, the trustee, he had given us in no uncertain terms that he was going to use his global reach that to the extent that we made recoveries anywhere else, he was going to go and attach those recoveries. And as I said, we had minimal assets, in fact, no assets. So the concept that we would actually be going out and trying to make recoveries even outside of the United States, if that was possible, but that at the end of the day, those are going to be attached or um, enforced by uh, the trustee for the benefit of his estate just wasn't a viable option. So we really had to sort of think about you know, how were we going to sort of deal with, with the trustee. Um, and I said, without having any cash, you know, even things like defending his claim was going to be a problem. So one of the things that we kind of realized was that he was interested and was going to pursue our investors for subsequent transferees, basically as, as, as parties to the extent that we were not going to be able to pay it, and I say we being Fairfield, he would then go to the ultimate beneficiary and try to attach the funds there. We also realized that we were probably going to be pursuing those investors as well for clawback claims. And so we had a common interest in both of us to be able to pursue claims against our investors. And so one of the things that we talked about early on is, is there a basis on which we could be able to both do that, but then be able to share whatever uh, proceeds came in? And that became sort of the fundamental core, was look at what potential uh, causes of action we may have. Uh, and then determine who was best to get the benefit of that. So we were able to make a, work out a mechanism whereby we could um, allocate, in effect, whatever cause of action and then what percentage each, each of the two parties would get. The big issue became cash. Um, I mentioned the $71 million. <clears throat> The trustee was very interested in getting. And, and having that transferred to him, he was willing to give us some time, but he wanted those funds. I also knew that in regards to the BVI court, the idea that I would be transferring, in effect, all my cash um, probably wasn't going to be something that it would take and consider. It, it would have real reservations in, in us doing so. So we spent a, a lot of time sort of back and forth on that. And eventually, I was able to persuade the trustee to give us a SIPC claim in his estate for $230 million. And to be able to demonstrate to my BVI court that that $230 million I would be able to sell um, and actually entered into a contract to sell it, that would result in $70 million coming into the estate. So in effect, from a cash perspective, it was a wash. I would have to pay $70 million, but then I had this other asset that I could easily realize $70 million. And so there really wasn't any sort of additional risk or burden that came onto the estate. Um, so that was how we got in. 
the benefit of having uh, Mr. Picard on side and having done a settlement with him is that at the same time we were looking into Chapter 15 and getting recognition in the United States. We needed documents, so a lot of information regarding um, our redeemers, um, of the activities that had occurred, um, and we were also quite aware that we would need to be able to maybe pursue claims here at some stage and regarding sort of avoidance claims, which would have to be done under, a, under the recognition regime rather than sort of a third-party um, civil complaint. And it, one of the things I had learned having done Sphinx many years earlier, which was the first sort of Chapter 15 recognition um, application on which there was an objection filed. There have been Chapter 15s before that, but the first time an objection was filed by a creditor where the judge is the same, he's the bankruptcy trustee uh, with oversight over the creditor, and then when I came to get Chapter 15, was also going to be the bankruptcy judge assigned to that case, was that um, it would be better if I had that creditor support my Chapter 15 rather than to be against it. And so having you know, worked a settlement with the trustee, we were able to uh, persuade the trustee to provide a letter of support for our Chapter 15 um, and was able to get it through um, also meeting a number of other criteria, but was able to get recognition. Uh, and in regards to Fairfield, it is now the leading case in regards to getting recognition under Chapter 15 in the United States for foreign representatives uh, based on the Second Circuit decision um, that came out uh, following when our approval of this. So it was very important for us in regards to the fund and being able to get access to our records and being able to pursue certain claims to have that Chapter 15. So not only did we have a unique settlement that resolved the issue of, of, or of the trustee uh, finding or being able to chase down our assets so we could actually you know, bring assets into the estate, but secondly, all of the other things that we had duties to go, which is like look at your records, investigate, we we're now able to do that also under the Chapter 15 regime. And Ken, you, you also mentioned that Fairfield had some money in a bank account in Ireland. Tell me about how you approached the recovery of the money in the Irish bank account. The, the I, I mentioned that in regards to Fairfield Century, it had the account in an Irish bank of a, or an Irish branch of a Dutch bank. Uh, and that was encumbered and that wasn't the assets that we could, were free and clear for us to use. The reason that they weren't free and clear was because prior to our my appointment, a Dutch shareholder uh, made a redemption claim against the fund after it had learned of the Madoff fraud. So he learns of the fraud and then makes a claim against um, Fairfield Century. Also as part of um, its claim, and it filed that claim um, in the Dutch courts. Um, and the creditor was a Dutch pension fund. So, you know, the people who are underneath that are basically retirees of a large corporation. Clearly, their retirement money is basically what is, you know, fed the fund. So there's, you know, a sympathy to try to make sure that those monies get back to those parties. They also um, wrote to the court in the Netherlands, knowing that there was 
assets sitting in a Dutch bank in Ireland and ask the Dutch bank or Dutch court to file an injunction or to freeze the funds that were in Ireland. And the Dutch court did so. So when we came in, um, we had a situation where there was a claim already filed in the Netherlands against Fairfield Century for the redemption proceeds, and there is a injunction filed against the bank account. Uh, efforts had been made to try to remove that injunction before we arrived. We were unsuccessful. So when we came in, we basically defended that claim. I mentioned to you, our sense was that the Dutch court was sympathetic to the, or the plaintiffs in this, in this action. And our concern was that these parties would be then be able to, to enforce it against that cash. And in effect, I talked about our duty to making sure the creditors properly ranked get paid out, or these parties, shareholders, would be able to move themselves up the ladder in regards to ranking and prioritize themselves, which was a concern to us. We were also concerned with the amount of costs this was going to incur. So our first thing was to go to the Irish court and to seek recognition there. So a similar thing like under Chapter 15, but under Irish um, common law, which has a similar type of law as there is in BVI, going get recognition, and then to ask for the stay, or the, sorry, the um, injunction to be lifted. Uh, we got recognition, so they recognized me as a liquidator over Fairfield Century. But what they didn't do and weren't willing to do is remove the injunction. Um, being a fellow EU state, um, in their view was it wasn't appropriate for them to question or to uh, override what another EU state had done. So if I wanted to do that, I'd have to go through the European Court of Justice to be able to sort of have that, again, another cost. We appealed that decision, but our real concern then was that our appeal wasn't going to be heard fast enough. That in effect, what would happen is the Dutch proceedings would move faster than the Irish proceedings, and so that by the time the appeal was heard, the monies may already be gone. So we, our, our BVI council came up with this great idea of an anti-suit injunction and seeking an anti-suit injunction in the BVI. Um, and the idea really behind that is, is you are looking for a order in the British Virgin Islands that says to the shareholder, stop your litigation, remove your injunction. We lost that at the first instance in the BVI courts, but subsequently appealed that and eventually went to Privy Council and we were successful in getting um, the anti-suit injunction. The focus on this was whether we had jurisdiction and whether the BVI court had enough authority and power to be able to enforce a uh, injunction. But the primary issue was around jurisdiction. Had the Dutch uh, member um, taken steps in which it became subject to the jurisdiction of the BVI court, and the, the, at both at the Court of Appeal and at the uh, Privy Council level, which is like the Supreme Court for BVI, uh, they found that we did have that jurisdiction. Now, one could still argue, well, why would a Dutch um, shareholder care what a BVI court says? 
it knows that the monies are in Ireland, um, its litigation is in the Netherlands, um, it doesn't really matter what a BVI court does. Well, what we were able to do is we realized that this um, Dutch creditor was also, or Dutch shareholder was also had assets in the United States. And so what we told it, it was, it was that our intent was to take the anti-suit and get it recognized in the United States. And therefore, to the extent that it went and pursued its claim against Century, then it would probably be sanctioned by the United States for being in breach of the anti-suit. Having given that indication, um, then when we got the decision out of the Privy Council, that Dutch shareholder withdrew its litigation in the Netherlands, which freed up the money that was sitting in Ireland. So a real creative way of being able to you know, have a party um, which we were concerned about what was going to happen in, in the Netherlands or in Ireland, but be able to you know, sort of have that party withdraw its litigation um, through the BVI um, process. It was, was quite, quite unique at the time. And let's, let's also turn to another notable litigation in which Fairfield was involved. Uh, the liquidators entered into a contract with Farnham Place LLC for Farnham Place to acquire your $230 million SIPA claim for uh, $73.8 million. That contract was eventually disapproved under Section 363 of the Bankruptcy Code, and Fairfield successfully fought appeals all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court, where cert was ultimately denied, meaning that the Supreme Court declined to review the decision of the court below. Can you tell us, uh, Ken, what happened in the litigation involving that contract? So I had mentioned earlier on that in our settlement with the trustee, the big issue became this element of cash, and that I wanted to be able to demonstrate that I was able to create a asset or realize an asset that had cash of $70 million to be. This is really what this is all about. So this was around the SIPC claim that was um, admitted by the trustee as part of the settlement for $230 million. Uh, one of the things that we had done to make sure, um, and which is, I think, a typical thing that a, a trust or a, uh, a liquidator would do, particularly in, these, in the offshore, is that you make the contract subject to um, the BVI court and, if necessary, the U.S. bankruptcy court. And the reason we do that, as I had mentioned earlier, are we are officers of the court. So to the extent that you are selling a major asset or, um, in this case, something like you know a claim in the SIPC to somebody else, you're probably going to go to the court and get direction as to whether you can go ahead with that sale or not. So you'll have that as a term of the contract, and we did in this case. Um, days after I entered into the contract, the trustee entered into a settlement with the Pecower estate. Now, that was a huge claim, something we didn't know anything about at the time of our negotiation with the trustee or even in regards to the sale of the, of the uh, claim to Farnham. But what it did is it moved uh, the value of the claim from around 32 cents on a dollar to double that amount. So I think claims were selling around 65 at that time. Uh, so clearly, all of a sudden now I had entered into a contract of which I was selling an asset at an undervalue. 
a value that actually was a lot less than what it was worth. Um, so when we went to the BVI court and, and sought its direction, normally you would be going and asking for approval of the entering into the contract. In this instance, I went to the BVI court and said, disapprove the contract. BVI court refused to do that. Their view was that I had entered into the contract in good faith. And on that basis, therefore, I should um, continue with the contract. And, and they determined that it was valid. However, because a term of the contract was that also we'd have to go to US bankruptcy, you know, it directed me to go to the US bankruptcy court and to get um, approval or disapproval there. We went to the, to the bankruptcy court, and at both the bankruptcy court and then subsequently appealing that to the district court, we lost. Um, they basically, there's different ways that they kind of looked at it, but they basically, at least at the first instance, said, well, if the BVI court says comply with it, who are we to question that? And so basically under the idea of, of a comedy, um, they also approved the contract. We appealed that to the Second Circuit, uh, arguing that Section 363 applied in relation to this, and Second Circuit agreed with us. It remanded the um, litigation back down to the bankruptcy court um, and asked that, uh, that the court look at it from the idea of whether it was in the best interest of the creditors of the fund. And the key to this is at the time of the application. So the time when I was filing the application, the claim was worth 65 cents on a dollar rather than the 32 that was sitting in the contract. So it basically asked the, the bankruptcy to look at whether there was a substantial business justification for the sale. And upon it being uh, remanded, the bankruptcy court decided to disapprove the sale. We went back through the district court and Second Circuit, and as you say, eventually it went to see if it could be certified by the Supreme Court. It, it wasn't, um, and at, as a result of that, we were able to have the contract disapproved. Benefit to the estate is that meant another $100 million that came in because the value of that claim now is somewhere in the region, as you said, 75 cents on a dollar um, is what you know, you're going to be getting back. So you know, we're looking at something that initially that was 32, 75. So that's a, that's a real good success story in regards to you know, us being able to take something that was relatively small and then being able to add another 100 million to the estate. Sure, and you know, in our conversation, we've mentioned a few times you know, the uh, proceedings in the U.S. Bankruptcy Court for the Southern District of New York. Judge Stuart Bernstein oversees the Madoff SEPA liquidation in that court. Uh, and what lawsuits has Fairfield commenced in the bankruptcy court? I mentioned kind of early on we had Chapter 15. We were looking at whether there may be claims within the sort of liquidation itself or liquidation type of claims, insolvency claims, to be pursued. So um, the liquidators have filed really sort of two types of claims in front of the U.S. Bankruptcy Court. One is avoidance claims. Uh, under BVI law, uh, we are allowed to go back two years in regards to members 
and claw back um, monies if the fund was insolvent, um, which in this case it clearly is. So we have pursued those claims in relation to um, clawing back. In addition, we've made basically what a common law um, restitution type of claim to be able to claw back as far back as six years um, against um, redeemers as well. So people who redeemed their claims before um, I was appointed. We have very recently heard from Judge Bernstein's on motions to dismiss and objections to amending the co complaints in relation to these claims. Um, Judge Bernstein uh, determined that the avoidance claims can continue in effect um, and also that uh, in relation to the six-year claims while generally speaking those cannot continue they can if the Redeemer had knowledge of the Madoff fraud. So we still have qu quite substantial claims um, there's about 305 claims that have been filed and almost all of those continue to be able to proceed going forward. And we're talking um, recoveries that we're looking in the region of four to five billion dollars, I believe, in relation to these claims. So it's a still a very significant amount uh, of, of money that's trying to be pursued. Still very much in the early stage, um, but one that we, you know, we're hopeful we'll be able to sort of get some recoveries either by people wanting or parties wanting to settle or in regards to eventually having to go and get judgment against them. Can you spoke to us about those ongoing litigation efforts? Uh, what's next for the Fairfield recovery efforts? Are they close to a conclusion? And what are, I mean, are there pending decisions that we should watch out for going forward? Because of the settlement that we did with the U.S. trustee, um, and because the bulk of our work is around the, the uh, redeemer claims, there's, sti there's still a lot of sort of legwork that sort of needs to be done. As, as those who follow the Madoff uh, insolvency will be aware, uh, the trustee is in the Second Circuit, um, having his uh, extraterritoriality um, decision being reviewed there in regards to his subsequent transferee claims. And in that regard, there's a, I think, a general feeling in the marketplace and from those who were um, in attendance that, that he will be successful. And if that occurs, and with the fact that we still have some of our claims in place, we clearly both will be going after some of those redeemers and getting those monies back. So there's I think the trustee has indicated that he's probably got another sort of, he sees five years in which, you know, those claims will be pursued. So because our sort of goals and our objectives are aligned, I think that that's probably where we're looking at this. Um, I think that you also, um, we have claims that we're still pursuing in Canada and, and the Netherlands against um, the auditor, for instance. Um, so those all need to be addressed as well. Um, but they'll be within that time frame as well. What's the significance of Fairfield's story when we consider the Madoff case more broadly speaking? For instance, are there lessons to be gleaned here for practitioners in offshore asset recovery? You know, one of the things is when you have a case like Fairfield, um, we were fortunate 
you know, that we spent the sort of early days really trying to focus on where did we think we could recover assets um, and how we would deal with the trustee and how important that was. Um, we were also, um, you know, had a really good team in regards to our legal team who were providing sort of input in regards to, you know, the risks of going down different um, streets. And we had a liquidation committee that was basically of a view that, you know, given the type of issues that we were facing, to the extent that there was any money that came in, and we were lucky to be able to get some early recoveries, to the extent that that money came in, it would be worth spending that money to try to see if we could actually get some, you know, some significant realizations for them, rather than just something that would be, you know, less than a cent on the dollar. So with that support and being able to get, you know, I said some early recoveries in, um, and thinking it through, you know, I think we had a very thoughtful, you know, strategy, and a lot of what we were, you know, it was interesting to look at it ten years sort of after the fact. You know, we've done better probably than we initially thought we were going to be, and we're we're um, because of things like the SIPIC claim and and the, the success that we had on that. So. I think overall, it was just a good strategy up front, um, well thought out, the risks were really well con uh, considered, and then having a, you know, a, a legal team that was quite creative and quite, um, you know, uh, coming up with, with legal concepts and that you could use to try to bring those monies in, I think we had a lot of success in it. So, you know, a lot of these are experience and sort of having that time to think about things um, and putting a strategy and then it working. So, um, and that's, that's what happened here in Fairfield. Well, thank you so much, Ken, for joining us today for this conversation. And to our subscribers, Ken has written an article titled Madoff from a Feeder Fund Perspective 10 Years Later, which is now available on Reorg's media page. It provides a closer look at the topics that Ken discussed with us today, and we really encourage readers to check it out. Thanks for listening. That's all for this week. As a reminder, you can access all Reorg podcasts on the media page. If you're not a subscriber, you can find them on iTunes and SoundCloud. I'm Connor Skelding, and this has been The Week in Reorg. <laughs>